My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Nikita Nuambor is a professor at the University of Kansas, where she researches ethics and workplace deviance. Nikki has published research in premier academic journals, and she is also an excellent teacher. Nikki teaches business ethics to students at Kansas, as well as to military students who attend the Army's Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And I know Nikki is an excellent teacher, because I once overheard one of her students tell her that her business ethics class was his favorite class, which is no small feat for a business ethics class. Nikki earned a PhD in management from Erasmus University in the Netherlands, a master's degree in applied ethics from Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium, and a master's degree in social and organizational psychology from Leiden University in the Netherlands. Nikki also speaks several languages, including Dutch, Portuguese, Spanish, and German. I hope you enjoy learning from Nikki de Nuenbor today, because I always do. Nikki, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. We're doing this over Zoom, which feels a little awkward because our offices are right across the hall from each other. But regardless, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, Nikki, you've had a really interesting career and you've arrived at a place that maybe you wouldn't have expected. And you've learned a lot of things along the way. So as as you think back on your career, your journey, uh, are there any lessons, simple, practical, underappreciated that you've learned along the way that you'd most like to pass along to others? Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, I guess, uh, you know, a reason why you invited me on the on the podcast is that um, uh, I have a learning disability, uh, which has made my career and career choices uh, perhaps a, a little different than uh, that of most people. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I, I think in terms of life lessons, if I want to sort of uh, uh, preview that, um, don't believe what other people say and uh, and work your way around whatever norms and expectations um, there are. And uh, just because something is a norm doesn't mean that it cannot be changed or questioned. And also norms are just norms, right? Taken for granted. And so uh, as a person, uh, so I have dyslexia, as a person with a learning disability, uh, growing up, I was, uh, I was, um, you know, the, the school environment didn't fit at all how I learn or how I process information. I was only diagnosed around age 14 uh, until that time. I And even after the time, I, I never received any accommodations because I'm like ancient. And so um, at the time, there wasn't really a lot to do with accommodations and nobody really understood what dyslexia was exactly. And so it, it, I always had to figure out my own way to, to receive material and to learn and uh, to navigate college. And, uh, and so that's where I, I'm very sort of independent thinker and, and, uh, and I don't care about the bureaucracy that other people created because it was not created for people like myself. And so I could never, I, I could never survive there. So that makes me very sort of, I guess, singular and, uh, and just focused on, on what I think is, is right. Um, now, how I got to this career, I was actually doing a, uh, a mentoring session for uh, current students uh, at the place where I did my PhD uh, last week. And, and, and uh, uh, so these current students were students with a disability. So I had, was talking to one who had ADHD and, and OCD. And, uh, and she asked me about how my career uh, came about and whether uh, you know my career was always very intentional because she was very much concerned about sort of uh, 
um, I guess I want to say, and this is maybe a little bit Dutch um, because I am from the Netherlands, but a, uh, you know, tripping her way and, and falling her way through through her career. And uh, and then I was like, well, I think my, my, my life and career has actually pushed me towards academia, but certainly not because everything was very successful. Uh, so certainly in my schooling, I failed through just about everything. Um, then my first job, and I, I was always kind of ambitious, uh, but my first job, um, I, uh, I got laid off because essentially at some point there was just not any work for me to do. Uh, so by the time that, you know, it was around 25 that I lost that job. Uh, then I found another job at KPMG in uh, in Belgium, which I would have never applied to if I hadn't gotten laid off uh, at my at my first job. So then I was at KPMG Belgium. This uh, started around 2000. Uh, and then uh, shortly thereafter, uh, you know, Enron hit and uh, and uh, KPMG in Belgium had a little bit of its own Enron, uh, Arthur Anderson situation in a, in a company that uh, Lernau and Husby, uh, which was speech technology, but it was all one giant fake situation uh -huh. and KPMG had been the auditor there. Uh, and so, and it was really badly organized. So they were laying off uh, by late 2002, early 2003, uh, laying off a lot of people. And I was, I was working there in ethics management and, uh, and uh, in Belgium, uh, they certainly didn't appreciate ethics management coming from Dutch people and, and also not just not generally the Belgians apparently are still <laughs> not really into, into, uh, you know, ethics consulting. Um, and so I got laid off again. So by, by that time I was uh, like uh, 28 uh, and uh, and I thought, well, my career is kind of like a total dumpster fire. Um, and uh, and I basically I had two plans. I would either um, attempt a PhD, uh, and I will get a little bit into why I wanted to do a PhD, uh, or I would move to Portugal and start waitressing and just seeing what what would happen in life. Um, and uh, and uh, and then uh, so I uh, applied for just one school because um, uh, one of my KPMG colleagues, he was actually a full professor there. And so I wanted to do my PhD with him. Uh, so they wanted me to do the GMAT. Uh, I didn't want to do the GMAT because severely traumatized by standardized testing because uh, dyslexic people are really bad at standardized testing. So I had myself retested for dyslexia uh, and then I didn't get in. Uh, and uh, and so then I was okay. I'm going to move to Belgium, uh, and Portugal. And Portugal, sorry, I was in Belgium. Yes, good for paying attention there. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, and then uh, so it was like October or something, and uh, and I was packing up my stuff to move to Portugal, uh, and then my advisor, uh, later advisor, called and said, hey someone didn't show up. He was admitted to the program, but he got admitted to a different program also, went to the other program, just never told anybody at the at Erasmus University. And so we have the slot open and I can um, I, I can wheel you in. And I, I was like, okay, I need to think about it. And as I was putting the phone down, because this was still a landline kind of situation, I was like, of course. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, so, so yeah, so... Uh, it was it life has pushed me towards this career and then I, I still sort of planned to move to Portugal after my PhD but turns out I was too good at this uh, this job uh, that uh, and, and I love Portugal but you know the universities are not not always all the excellent standards so I don't want to dis them but yeah uh, I, uh, I ended up moving to the United States instead so why did I want to do a PhD um, to prove I wasn't stupid and uh, and so this is uh, this is the uh, a very common dyslectic experience, and I'm learning also certainly a, a an experience that 
kids with ADHD have is that, uh, the, you know, like reading and writing is only one part uh, of dyslexia. Uh, and, and it's something that a lot of people associate with dyslexia, uh, but it's the other stuff that is caused by our different neurology that has us uh, essentially present ourselves in a, in a way that uh, teachers just think we're lazy, we're not trying hard enough, and that essentially we're not smart. Uh, and so I was uh, more or less uh, officially declared not smart um, uh, at uh, age 12. Um, and, and so I can, you know, talk a little bit about that. So in, in a way, you know, it's, it's, I don't appreciate that of teachers. So this is, this is like, not just me, this is most uh, dyslexic people uh, have this experience. So why do we come across as not caring or not working hard? Uh, in part, it's sort of inconsistencies of, um, you know, how we perform, uh, like I have a little bit of homework of myself or a project that I did when I, I think I was eight or nine years old. Uh, and uh, and I have the word flag in a in a sort of 20 word blurb. Uh, I wrote the word flag three times and I spelled it differently three times. Oh. Uh, and uh, and uh, so in part, that just seems sloppy to uh, to to professors. Right. Because obviously once of the three times it was right. And so I knew how it was spelled. apparently. <laughs> Uh, I just wasn't, you know, bothered enough to 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 do it consistently, right? Um, but then stuff that that uh, people usually do not know about uh, is that we tend to daydream a lot. Why do we daydream a lot? It's because this is how we process information uh, better. Uh, we need oversight and the and the big picture um, before we understand things. Until I have the big picture, I just don't understand anything that's happening. And so how we process that information due to our different neurology, where apparently also like the distance between neurons is bigger. And so the signal takes longer and whatnot. We just need to zone out and disconnect. And so you see kids in the classroom staring out the window. Uh, the uh, dyslexic kids usually, um, uh, many of them have um, uh, uh, attention problems. So it's comorbid also with ADHD. And so here you see me being very distractible and so not very, you know, not willing to, willing apparently uh, to concentrate. Well, concentration is for me just literally quite, quite difficult to actually do. Uh, and then a, a bigger uh, issue uh, still is that, um, so uh, most dyslexic people have problems with phonetic uh, decoding, which means translating sounds into uh, words, into meaning. Uh, most dyslexic people or all dyslexic people and uh, a lot of ADHD folks also have a poor working memory, which is a part of the memory where, um, you know, you store short-term things like number sequences and, and things like that. Um, and, and the combination of these two things is that uh, for me and for many other dyslexic people, it's very hard uh, to follow verbal instructions. Uh, and a lot of the instruction that is given, especially at a younger age, is verbal instructions. It's mm -hmm. like, we're going to do X, Y, Z, and there you go. Um, and, uh, and, and so I presented myself in the class, uh, like many dyslexic people, as uh, um, not caring because I could basically, I was just zoned out looking out the window and I noticed, so it's also very hard not to think of yourself as, as sort of stupid. So all of a sudden everybody starts working, doing something. So that's my cue that instructions were just given. But I had literally not been able to understand or follow or track any of those um, 
um, um, instructions. And so I would have to ask, you know, neighbors and things like, what are we doing? Why are we doing mm. this? And all this kind of stuff. So if you see a kid like that in your classroom, who, you know, is distractible, daydreams a lot, and doesn't follow along with instructions, while everybody else knows what to do, but this one kid does not, then it becomes, I guess, just attractive, uh, you know, or, or, you know, it becomes likely that you, you'll just think that they're not trying hard, that yeah. they're not very smart. Um, and that's just something that really just uh, never disappears. We're also bad in, uh, in uh, standardized testing. Uh, and so at some point in uh, uh, sixth grade, uh, Dutch kids at the time, and still right now, I think, would get standardized testing. Uh, and uh, it would inform uh, teachers about uh, sort of the what they would suggest for uh, to do in, in secondary school where at the time uh, and still now in a slightly different form but we have a formal sort of you know honors track uh, that lasts six years and we have a sort of a regular track that lasts five years and then the track that's more or less not quite but more or less sort of more for the um, uh, you know, trait people. So if you want to be a car mechanic or a hairdresser or something like that. So we split up these kids uh, uh, around age 12, 13. We, we split them up into these three different groups. Uh, and a lot of uh, the, the suggestion or the advice that the teachers give you about where your future lies depends both on, on their experiences with you throughout your elementary school, but also just the standardized tests. And I, I scored in the 17th, so the one seven percentile of kids um, that would go on to the honors track. And wow. so he, they had plenty of evidence uh, to say that I just, you know, that I wasn't smart and I did, didn't try hard. And, uh, and, and try as I might, uh, you know, because they were always complaining about my handwriting and motor skills are an issue for dyslectic people. So I tried bigger, smaller, it was never good. They complained about my reading, reading out loud. So I remember distinctly um, um, at some point that they said, you know, when the question, when the sentence ends in the question mark, you need to like do your voice like this. And, <laughs> and so I was like, uh, you know, this this final reading test for, you know, at the end of sixth grade, and I was going at it with all the question mark like me. And I thought, you know, finally I'd done a good job because all those question marks, I was quite sure that I like actually like went up with my voice properly, how I ought to do it. And so no, again, it wasn't good enough. And so, and so I was just at some point at a at a complete loss and 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 lost all my self-esteem when they officially declared I was just not going to be very smart. Uh, now, my parents, uh, I had given up on myself at that point in time, essentially, and my parents uh, said, you know, just just hold on, just wait and see. We believe in you and uh, and just don't don't close off any potential future opportunities for yourself. Uh, and then I uh, so then I went to uh, to uh, a secondary school and uh, and luckily my brother who was older was already in that school and he was obviously one of the smartest kids in this class that's when the teacher started thinking there's just something weird with that lady going mm -hmm. on so I was tested and I was tested you know for dyslexia uh, and then I just got angry I just got angry I got angry to to prove myself that I wasn't stupid and that's why I went to doctoral school to get like officially uh the the, the the you know there's there's no higher degree and so now nobody can tell me that I'm stupid anymore <laughs> look at that but it was you know it was a a sort of um 
you know, as in therapy, they say you can use anger to motivate. And so anger can be, you know, uh, certainly motivating and a very sort of um, emotion uh, that that will, you know, help you work hard. And, uh, and so, yeah, but it also made me, you know, slightly, if you'd know me as a younger person, I, you know, a lot of people thought I had a chip on my shoulder and I did because I, I needed to prove myself. So certainly I've, I've mellowed down a lot in the, in the, in the past decade or so. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of, that's my career. It's, it's mostly anger driven. <laughs> well, it's such an interesting story, Nikki, and thank you for opening up about this. So you're teaching ethics now at do, the yes. University of Kansas. And in, and I don't know how comfortable you feel about talking about this on a podcast, but I remember you saying, at least I think in semi-public settings, that you used to cheat a lot. And that was part of how you got through school. And, and maybe, you know, a lot is, of course, relative. Um, but is that something you'd be willing to talk some, sure. about? Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to caution. I don't think a lot. Okay. And, and, and that's <laughs> a so lot relative to zero. So maybe like yeah. once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> No, and uh, and uh, and uh, um, and uh, once I got called out on it, that was sort of like a pivotal moment in uh, in my life, and uh, that I talk about in class a lot. And so I I, I talked to my students about this to tell them how. Um, not to be proud of any accomplishments that you've uh, that you've reached uh, to uh, in in an unethical way, uh, and but also to explain why I uh, I uh, I teach what I teach and and what my approach in uh, in the classroom is, which is really about how the uh, environment sometimes makes it very difficult or impossible not to cheat, and uh, and so I did. Yes, I I, I think the main uh, sort of uh, thing that I did. Obviously, we needed to read and uh, both in in small groups, and I was uh, sort of uh, uh, reading out loud in a small group with two uh, two boys and uh, we I think only got through like one level in the curriculum while there were like seven and uh, and we were all just doodling around and and uh, but I didn't do any cheating there I just didn't do any reading there uh, which sort of added to this whole this girl is not smart because like look at that um, my my main sort of method of cheating was uh, for independent reading uh, that I would essentially make uh, make a book reports now I do think I read some books but I also know like uh, and I was thinking about this this morning uh, like I would choose books that are really famous and then I could just make up out of general knowledge I could just make yeah. up this uh, 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 a book report and so one book that I that I read but didn't actually read uh, was uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin uh, why did, did I choose that well I had already watched like the TV show North and South so I was somewhat familiar with the slavery problem in uh, in back then the United States of, of long ago uh, and I think there was also a TV show on uh, on that same uh, book uh, in the Netherlands. And then the added benefit was that it was a really big book, so I could pretend to read that for a very long time. Uh, and uh, and so uh, I, uh, I uh, and so I did. And so one other that I did that the same way was uh, you know um, Anne Frank's Diary. I mean, just nobody that grows up in the Netherlands doesn't have like a vague understanding of what that book is about. Also, sort of uh, she doesn't know it. Well, I told her I think recently. But I also sort of co-opted my mother into the scheme. I would just say, like, oh, I read this book, but I really don't know what to write about in my, in my <laughs> report. And she would be like, oh, you could like, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay. <laughs> I would write whatever the heck she would do. Uh, so that was very, very helpful. Um, so eventually I got called out on not the book report situation, but we had to make a project on them. On grapes, because uh, there was a guy in uh, in the little town where I, I I went to school who had like a vineyard there, and and so we had like an excursion going there, and you know we talked about grapes and whatnot, 
And, and, you know, I'm not entirely sure because I was like 11 at the time. So I'm not entirely sure what was going on in, in my mind. Um, but I had, uh, like in terms of not understanding that this was unethical or this was cheating, because uh, I had literally photocopied a, 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 like a piece of an encyclopedia and cut that out and put that in my project. And I mean, and and I, I swear, I don't think I meant to cheat, but obviously I think most people would say like, if you don't know that that's cheating, then there's some probably something wrong with your, <laughs> you know, with, with how you were erased, which probably maybe is. Um, and, um, and then uh, this was like the only thing that we ever got prize for because there were no prizes in the Netherlands, still not, and uh, because we don't do the awards thing. So, so very. And then I got like second prize in the, in the, because they thought it was wonderful. And then a girl, so a peer next to me, uh, yelled out in uh, in in public, um, but she didn't even do the project. She did like that's not her own work. Essentially, she was saying, uh, and uh, and she was right. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and I haven't cheated since. And I think this is why I teach ethics, uh, is that I was just deeply compromised, if you will, as a child, yeah. uh, trying to meet expectations, um, never meeting any of them because I they just didn't understand any of how my brain works. And, uh, you know, I, for, to, to manage the distractibility, I'd ask to be, you know, sit aside by myself, you know, almost behind a file drawer and I've tried everything and, uh, and, 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 and I tried the cheating, but then I got called out on it, which may have, you know, uh, maybe they, they knew about all of the cheating all the time. So that this is part of why they thought I wasn't very smart. Uh, but yeah, and it's not uncommon for for dyslexic kids to uh, cheat or have sort of a I scratch your back, you scratch my back kind of situation with a peer. I know somebody who had like, uh, you know, for projects, uh, she had a friend in her class and uh, and the friend would do all the writing and she would do all the drawing and they would like hand in separate projects. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's mm -hmm. how she managed I spoke to one guy. He because uh, I did uh, 51 interviews with uh, dyslexic people for a um, 51 dyslexic people for a uh, for a paper of mine. Uh, one of our interviewees, his grandfather had been a spy because apparently we're really good at at spying. So MI six or whatever it is in in the UK deliberately uh, recruits dyslexic people. Oh for, wow! Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and so, you know, steaming open envelopes and picking up locks of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, you know, drawers or, or offices to like look at exams before they were given, you know, that guy did that. And then there's, you know, a more benign cheating, if you will, that, uh, spoke with the person. He had a lot of admin that he had to do, and he would just sometimes fake being sick to have time at home to work on the, on the admin that he needed to do that he just couldn't get done in, uh, during the regular work day. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and, and yeah, I remember one person saying, oh, I cheat. I didn't know if we should talk about this in the interview, but I cheated my, my face off in school. And, uh, and so, yeah. <laughs> You know, because especially if you're not diagnosed, like, you know, you're smart in a way, but you also know you're different and you yeah. definitely know that you cannot do what other kids can do. And uh, and then, you know, sometimes this is this is what happens. Well, and I, so I love, you know, going back to your lessons of don't believe what other people say. Right. And you had to have the self-belief, which sounds like your parents really kind of helped, you know, hang in there at the end. And then you just got to work around the norms and figure out how to make it happen. Yeah. In your situation. Yeah. 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 No, that um, I was uh, like, uh, uh, 
now understanding mental health better uh i uh, i i had gotten uh you know the 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 impacts that my elementary school had on on me and sort of officially declaring me uh you know stupid and lazy uh it was so profound that much of my early teens and and later teens i was i was depressed and if my parents hadn't sort of said they weren't pressuring me you know they said like you have to they said just just try it's so it's okay and so i think you know i have this moral obligation to always try but it's also okay to fail you know they were like just try if it doesn't work it doesn't work that's okay but just let's give it a go yeah. and that is uh that is i think you know what i i I try to do and so even you know like the, the the evening before officially starting my doctoral um uh program I had one small panic attack of what if I can't do it and I was with my dad and he was like well we'll just see you know mm -hmm. and so and so we'll just see and so that's that's ultimately how I I was able to cope and to get through and to later sort of try to heal myself from uh, from the trauma that uh, you know that essentially elementary school was for and is for many dyslexic people. Well, this is so inspiring, and I can only imagine you know the kind of transformation, at least in terms of maybe how other people see you. And I can kind of relate in a very small way um, because I played sports in high school, and sports was my priority. And then after uh, college, I ended up getting admitted to Stanford Law School. And I went back and visited with my basketball coach. And he's, you know, what are you up to? And I said, oh, I'm going to law school. Where are you going? Stanford. And he said, I didn't know you were smart. <laughs> and so it's funny. I've been on the side where I was just the athlete. I wasn't the guy that was smart. And now I'm the professor. And so some people, you know, assume I'm smart because I'm a professor. For you, this is like even way more extreme, you know, and the, was it the what percentile did you say in the, in the teens? You scored in the teens, one seven, to now in the one field that, you know, stereotypically people would say you're smart. So when you walk into a public meeting or, you know, a, walk into a meeting as a representative, as a professor from the University of Kansas, you're seen as the smart one. And you are obviously like you are very <laughs> intelligent and uh, you're a dynamic speaker and uh, you get great reviews from your students. And I've read your research. And so it's just so interesting that. Uh, I, I don't know how much has been a transition in your mind or just manifesting, showing to yourself and others that you are smart. And uh, it's just, it's just a very interesting, inspiring story to me. Yeah. Thank you. And I, you know, it's, uh, I will say it's not always easy because, uh, because, uh, uh, you know, trauma uh, is still triggering. Uh, like there was a huge shift for me after I got tenure, that I did have to sort of just step back and go to therapy to sort of figure out how to make the workplace a little less um, triggering for me. Uh, but I, I speak out about these things uh, because there's so much uh, confusion about what dyslexia is. There's still so much a, uh, like people cannot be smart if they are dyslexic. Uh, and uh, and, and a, a good chunk of our students that are dyslexic do not self-disclose and have, you mm. know, they're, they're in, in, the, in the space where I was when I was their age. Uh, and, and then, you know, in the dyslexic community, we have like the famous dyslexic people that you always get, like the Richard Branson, Charles Schwab, and, you know, all these like the Nobel Prize winners. And, and, uh, and then, you know, I also want to show that, you know, I, like I am successful, but I'm like not a Nobel Prize winner. And, you know, <laughs> like, like I'm, I'm the, I, I recently said, I forget where it was, but I'm like the dyslexia B-list celebrity, <laughs> you know. And uh, and so I want to show students that it's okay to to be that way. 
yeah, if they yeah. have a disability because they might not disclose and, and look at there's an actual just regular human being not like a sir richard branson but a regular human being living a regular life uh, and you can do it too and to show my colleagues to show everybody who doesn't understand dyslexia that yeah this is it you know you have a a, a colleague who most people i think think i'm at least decently competent and <laughs> uh, and and yet i'm learning disabled and you have these students in your class too and so be nice to them because these are talented people. Well, I love this idea of rejecting the norms, right? I mean, it's okay to be a B-list dyslexic. <laughs> yes, I think so. I think so. And uh, and uh, and uh, and yeah. And anyway, I, I you know, I, not everybody has to have a Nobel Prize, and and also I'm in the wrong fields to get a Nobel Prize, I guess. So. <laughs> Well, Nikki, thanks so much for sharing your time with me today. Like I said, you're an inspiration and you have also been so kind to me. You're my mentor at KU and you've been so helpful as I've transitioned here uh, to my first faculty job. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for your kindness. And I just appreciate the chance to learn from you today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity and uh, I'm going to be seeing you around, I'm sure. <laughs> See you soon. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. Nikki Den Neumbor is a fascinating person with an inspiring story, and I love the lessons she shared today. First, don't always believe what other people say about you. At a young age, Nikki was tested and told that she wasn't smart. She would later learn that she had dyslexia, but she never let that stop her. She eventually earned two master's degrees and a PhD because she just kept on trying and rejected the labels that others placed on her. Second, work your way around whatever norms and expectations might be holding you back. The school structure didn't fit with how Nikki learned, so she had to figure out her own way to navigate school. This experience helped her become an independent thinker. She doesn't care about the bureaucracy that other people created because it wasn't made for people like herself. After recording this episode, Nikki emailed me one more thing she wanted to share that her parents taught her, and I think it's a perfect end note to this episode. Nikki said that her parents didn't let her give up on herself. They taught her that it's okay to fail, but it's not okay to not try. Always just try and see, and if it doesn't work out, that's okay. Failure isn't bad, but you have to at least try. It's a simple idea. Please take it seriously. Nate Mickle here with three quick requests. First, if you would like a quick summary of these lessons delivered to your inbox, sign up for Nate's Notes at natemickle.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. And finally, if you'd give this podcast a five-star review on Apple iTunes, I would really appreciate it. Thanks for your support.